1: Afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Welcome to the Antithesis. My name is Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Just a moment ago, I quoted from Luke 1, verse 30. When Mary is informed in Luke's Gospel of the announcement that the Lord is with her and that she will deliver the Messiah himself, the angel notably says, do not be afraid. This stood out to me recently when I was reading Luke 1 in this Christmas season, because ours is a world of real fear. Few emotions, few experiences, few impulses are more commonly human than that, to be afraid. In fact, we need to be afraid. We need to be afraid of real threats. In a properly framed sense, we need to be afraid of the judgment of God. Or, to put it differently, in reverential terms, as believers, we need to fear God. We could talk at much greater length about what the fear of God is. Suffice it to say that the fear of God is right. Proverbs 1-7, in fact, tells us that the fear of the Lord is nothing less than the beginning of wisdom. So our process of knowing God, our pursuit of God, our desire to know God, does not only terminate with the fear of God. It's not that you go on a long odyssey to know God, and at the end of it, fear of God kicks in. It's that the very pathway to God begins with the fear of God, begins with submission to God, begins with reverence of God which in practical terms for knowledge and the acquisition of knowledge, of course, means that we submit to God's word. If we're we're going to know God, that is, we know God through the means of approach he has given us. We learn about him from his word, and his word leads us deeper and deeper into the fear of God, which terminates ultimately in believing fear of God in a full-orbed discipleship sense. That's a rich topic in and of itself. But actually, all of that is distinct from the experience of fear that we commonly have as human people on this earth. We fear not God, which we should. We fear this world. We fear the devil. We fear man. We fear what people will think of us. We fear what people will do to us. The Christmas story reminds us not to live in fear let's read luke one twenty six to thirty eight to hear how the angel addresses Mary with this birth announcement in the sixth month. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the House of David, in the virgin's name. Outside of the angel's counsel to Mary, imperative to Mary in verse 30, Mary would be afraid of the coming of an angel. When angels show up throughout the biblical narrative, you don't yawn and uh, eat your toast. You generally hit the dust. You hit the ground. In some cases, you think that you have seen God himself. Angels are in some sense veiled throughout scripture. That is, we, we don't know precisely Uh, A great deal about what they would have looked like per se. We have different descriptions in different places, and yet we can say very confidently that to come face to face with an angel often was a bewildering and even terrifying experience. But the angel Gabriel makes very clear to Mary that she is not to be afraid. She has found favor with God. She is going to bear the Messiah, the Son of Of the Most High, the one who has come to occupy the throne of his father David, the one who has come to reign over his people forever. Amazing news. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. It's not that Christmas Day per se is the birth date of Jesus, but this is what for centuries Christians have celebrated. And many of us will conclude that while we always give thanks to God for the incarnation, for the coming of Christ, for our salvation. Nonetheless, it is a good and heartening thing to give thanks to God in all seasons. And this is the season when uh, many Christians do so in America and around the world. We give thanks to God for the coming of Christ uh, to the earth. And so many of us take joy in this season. And this story reminds us, as I say, not to live in fear. In other words, we're not hearing what Mary heard ourselves uh, we're not giving birth to Messiah. the Messiah. That can't happen again. That has already happened. Mary has already done it. And yet, we too, in the Christmas season, need to hear the words, do not be afraid. Mary had her own complex reasons for being afraid, some of which I have already mentioned. But we don't need to restrict our understanding of the passage only to her situation. We too are in a fallen world. We, too, are frail creatures made of dust. We, too, are experiencing the bewildering nature of life in a world that does not work rightly in many respects. So, we, too, on a daily, even hourly, even minute-by-minute basis, are tempted not to live in a God-centered way, But to live in a fear-centered way. We all have our own temptations and failings and struggles. Uh, This isn't uh, a reality that takes hold in only one form for all of us. It is a common problem that has many expressions among the church. I'm speaking particularly to believers. Certainly if we broaden that outside of the church, we know that humanity fears tons and tons of things. We know that fundamentally from a passage like Hebrews two fourteen to 18, which we've talked about before on this humble little podcast, in our natural state, in our sinful state, we are enslaved to the fear of death. So we fear death transcendently. We are desperately afraid of dying because we know that dying will bring about the occasion of God's judgment and justice, which we fully deserve. So we all are enslaved to the fear of death. There are other fears we face as well. The fear of man is a huge one. The fear of the devil is a big one because we know that the devil is real and we know that we don't have protection from the devil. So Christmas is a season when these words from Gabriel ring in our ears. Do not be afraid, Mary. Do not be afraid, believer. The text, I think, through the example of Mary and her own unique circumstances, summons us to feel once more. Now, as I have said, in natural terms, though the Christmas season fills us with warmth, there are many reasons Why you and I look around and are tempted, as Christians, to fear today. There are all sorts of ill works afoot in this world. There is the loss of freedom that continues to play out in the West. There is a silenced church today. There are many who are apostatizing in our time. We are basically commanded to live in a make-believe world in 2021 until 2022. China is at war with America and the West. Western leaders themselves have bought into lies and are forcing us to live under a regime of lies in our time. Many of us Uh, have experienced hardships on a personal level. There are real health challenges and complications that not only have been experienced in the last 20 months, but are the sad consequence of our sin nature, of Adam's fall, um, a fall that is our fall as well. We are in tremendously difficult days, in many respects. It's not whining to say that out loud or to reckon with that. In fact, we must reckon with that. But this is actually not something new, is it? The fallenness of a fallen world hasn't just obtained in recent weeks or months. Think of Matthew 2, 16 to 18. Think of Herod, who demanded to be apprised of the whereabouts of the Christ child. And think about Herod's response when the wise men did not follow what he had said to do, did not submit to his ungodly decree and tell him, report back to him where the child was so that Herod, of course, could murder the child. The wise men did not submit to that ungodly imperative from Herod. And so Matthew 2.16 tells us this. Then Herod because they are no more. Matthew 2:16 to 18 reminds us in a visceral way that Christmas, if you will, is about war. It has always been about war. Christmas is about God sending the warrior savior who by his death buys back the people who have been enslaved to sin, Satan, death, and hell. This does not mitigate the truly uh, enlivening aspect of Christmas, uh, the sort of cozy nature of Christmas. My family and I love that dimension of this season. Uh, Being together as a family, uh, enjoying hot chocolate, uh, going to caroling services, generally uh, taking delight in a holiday season. There's nothing bad about that. There's nothing merely neutral about that. I actually think that's a blessing. That's a wondrous blessing for many of us. But we can't miss that Christmas is about God sending his best man to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, eight. God did so in a truly uh, un expected way. He did not send Christ on the clouds. The father did not commission the son in the son's first coming, that is, to split the sky and rout his enemies with a flaming sword in the first coming of the son of God to earth. Christ was born in the lowliest circumstances. Christ was born of a virgin. He was born amidst animals He was born without any royal celebration. In fact, he was born with Herod pursuing him unto death. Herod trying to find out where this Christ child was in order to kill the Christ child. So the desire to murder an infant has not been created in the last 60 years in America with Roe v. Wade and it's horrific enfranchising in American law and public policy. The desire to kill infants is more than 2,000 years old, but in terms of this particular iteration of the Christmas story of the biblical narrative, is about 2,000 years old. In terms of Herod targeting Christ, and then in frustration realizing he has not succeeded in killing this child that was to come, killing many baby boys, all those up to two years old, this is an ancient instinct. It is an ancient instinct to kill babies and little ones. It's not a new one. Well, this isn't exactly what we spend a lot of our time when we're shopping uh, outside and in public thinking about. This isn't what a ton of the traditional American Christmas carols or holiday music tells us and celebrates. But this is an honest appraisal in biblical terms, according to the word of God, our authority of the incarnation. That is, the events that bring about the incarnation in terms of time and space. What does all this mean? If we talk about the fallenness of the world, and if we zero in on Herod's murderous instinct to kill baby boys, where are we left? Uh, Am I trying to plunge us into despair and discouragement? Are, Are we abandoned to our fear by the Christmas story itself? If you pay attention to the biblical narratives, then you are driven to think through Herod's murderous actions and your breath is taken away. But here is where we are actually left by the biblical account of the incarnation. We are left with tremendous and surging hope. We are not plunged into despair and the fear of man and what man might do to us. We are lifted up by the Incarnation. If I can use our common term, we are deeply heartened by Christmas. Our world really is an enchanted world because Christ has come, because the Father has sent the Son into our world for us and our salvation. Yes, As C.S. Lewis captured in his own literary form in the Chronicles of Narnia, ours is an enchanted world. God has taken on flesh. The world is fallen. The world is cursed by God. And yet, God has acted to save and deliver us, to overcome the reign of the evil one, this is not only something that we're hoping God will carry out and do, as if we ourselves have whiteboarded it in a group session. This is what the Father has done. This is the very plan and will and purpose of our great, loving, heavenly Father, as laid out in Ephesians 1, 3-14. In fact, Ephesians 1 to is a tremendous companion text to the birth narratives of the Gospels. It shows us what the Incarnation was intended to do and definitely did. We have been purchased back because our Father loves us. Our Father loves us. He loves us so much that he gave his Son for us the Son of God has come into the world to deliver us, to overcome the devil, to liberate us from captivity to the fear of death. So Christmas is about war, but Christmas is about a war won by God. Christmas signals that the devil is now defeated and will be ultimately and finally defeated on the appointed day. Christmas was a successful invasion of the enemy's claimed territory. Satan thought this world was his. Satan thought that he could hold back the plan of God, but Satan could do no such thing. Satan is a created being, after all. Satan is not a divine being. And so Satan has been overcome on his own claimed territory. And God has done this in the humblest form, a form Satan would never have expected or anticipated, and even the natural mind would never have set up. So Christmas is about hope. It, it is not an easy hope. It's not a convenient hope. It's not a happy clappy hope. It's a hard one hope, isn't it? It's a hope that is only achieved Through the death and then the resurrection of the Son of God. So the hope that Christians preach and proclaim in a fallen world is not a cheap hope. It is a very costly hope, is it not? It is a hope, though, because it is costly. Because it is precisely the opposite of a kind of plastic hope that should lift us up continually. In the Christmas season, yes, but all throughout our lives, this is where we ground our confidence as Christians, that God has made good on his covenant promises and has kept his plan and has brought it to this apex point in Christ. Our salvation is purchased and the end has been written. Victory is coming. Victory is certain. All of this is signaled and celebrated in Christmas. So Christmas is not a time for misery. Christmas is not a time for fear. If we have our eyes open, we know there is much afoot that is evil. Christmas does not mean that you and I pretend evil does not exist. Sometimes that's what Christians think they are called to do. Because God is sovereign, and because we have the book of Revelation, all Christians have it, and all Christians agree that it is true, and that God is going to win in the end. We have some slight differences in how uh, things get there as we understand coming days, but let's not focus on what divides us fundamentally. Let's focus on the fact that Christians agree that God is bringing history to its perfect completion. And knowing this truth does not leave us with a cheap and shallow hope. Instead, the Bible, as I was referencing a few minutes ago, opens our eyes to the fact that even as Christ comes, Herod kills. So we do not close our eyes in 2021 or in any year and pretend that there is no pain and pretend that the providential Sovereign working of God means you don't even really talk about evil. The Bible talks about evil in the so-called Christmas season, in the incarnational event. The Bible juxtaposes the wonder and miracle of the Christ child, the coming of the Messiah in Mary's womb, with Herod's murderous slaughter of infants. So we are not a people for whom hope means blithely pretending that there is no death, there is no sin around us. We are not a people, furthermore, who simply huddle out in the cold of this fallen world as if we have no role to play while we are here. We are instead a people for whom hope means facing down the darkness, acknowledging evil, reckoning with sin, but not letting it have anything close to the final word. Instead, God has the final word. Instead, we are normed and driven and shaped not by the icy grip of fear of man, fear of death, fear of anything in this world. We are a people gripped and shaped and driven by The goodness of God in salvation. We're not closing our eyes to sin, but we are, above all, those whose gaze is lifted up to the heavens. The incarnation signals that God definitely is at war with the devil. God has his best man on it, and God is acting to overcome Satan for our salvation. We've tackled a lot of things in 2021 on the antithesis. As we conclude 2021, let's make good on these biblical realities. I have no brilliant insight to offer you. I am simply trying to harvest what is there in scripture. What what do we see as we conclude this strange, tumultuous, and evil year, 2021? I see... As we wrap up the year, the final podcast of 2021, I see such good. I see God working in amazing ways by his grace all around me. If your eyes are open, I'm sure you see the same. I see fathers loving their families. I see mothers nurturing children. I see single Christians, men and women, living purely, living for the glory of God. I see sound churches growing as the word is preached and proclaimed and believed. I see Christians standing for God's truth all around me. I see the gospel advancing all over the world. I see missions, agencies, faithfully training up missionaries such that men will go to the mission field, plant churches, and teams of missionaries will then labor in that context, making disciples, men and women alike, leading them into the local church on the mission field so that those people will be discipled and built up. That is, after all, what missions should be about. Missions, of course, is is not about uh, sending a group of people out and then shouting gospel words into the wind and hoping for the best. Missions should be about uh, the formation of churches all around the world. I see I see truth and beauty and goodness in the church and in God's common grace I see truth beauty and goodness in this world I see those even who are not believers but who again because of God's common grace are rejecting uh, a spirit of hatred I see good things happening in our midst I see much compromise, much apostasy, much evil. You see it too. But I am compelled by the Incarnation, by what we call Christmas, to lift up my eyes. I am led, as Mary was led, to not be afraid. What is more indicative of genuine Christianity? than that to live not in fear of man but in fear of God reverential trust in God driven by a massive glorious vision of our great and loving God and lastly I see one more thing I see darkness all around me and you see it too I feel it. Darkness is not only seen in this life. It is felt. You feel it, and I feel it. It is as if we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, to use that beautiful language of Psalm 23. It is as if we are pilgrims and strangers in the wilderness, as 1 Peter 2 tells us we indeed are. It is as if we are an exile people making our sojourn through a very difficult place, as indeed we are. It is like we have taken shelter on a high hill, on the side of a mountain perhaps. And we are indeed trying as much as we can to shelter our loved ones from the wind and give them some sleep, give them some rest in these difficult days. For those of us who are leaders, protectors, and providers for our families, men who have been called to this role by God himself, men who strive to fill the image of Christ, the role of Christ that is in our marriage and in our home, we are those who are keeping the night watch by God's grace, in God's strength, not in our own, but by the power and agency of the Spirit in us. Through union with Christ, yes, it is as if our loved ones are in the tent and we are on the side of the mountain and the wind is whipping across our face and there are challenges at every hand. And yet, we are we are protected. We are kept. We are loved by God. We give thanks, we men of, of this kind that I am trying to sketch out, for the woman God has given us, the woman who loves the Lord and who strives to serve the Lord with the wind in her face, who loves the children God has given us, who strives to serve the church, who has a quiet and gentle spirit. We are so thankful for her. She is the greatest earthly blessing we have. And so we seek, as she tries to get what rest she can in the tent on the side of the mountain, as we make our pilgrimage to the celestial city, we strive to protect her. We strive to strengthen her as much as we can, as the grace of God works through us. But we, ourselves, are not the deliverer. We are not the one who can face down the devil in the ultimate sense. We fight him with everything we have. We fight him and do not stop fighting until the day the breath goes out from our lungs and we are cold in the ground. And yet we are aware every minute and every day that we fight that we are not the greater David. We are not the Messiah. We are not the warrior king. At times, as we sit there on the side of the mountain waiting for the morning light, waiting to resume our pilgrimage through the valley of the shadow of death, it feels as if the darkness has wrapped itself around us. It feels as if the darkness has enveloped us. Again, we not only see darkness, we feel it. And it can feel as if there is no light in this world. And yet, then, as we sit there, cold, with little comfort at hand, we look out. And out there, far beyond us, in the wilderness, in the wild, we see a campfire. There is light in the darkness. There is a fire that is burning. You can just barely see it. But it is there. Someone has come into the darkness. Someone has entered the valley of the shadow of death. There is a warrior who is going to return. He is coming back. He feels impossibly far off, but he is not. He is drawing near. He will soon return. He will make all the wrong things right. He will make all the sad things untrue. This is what the incarnation signifies. The first coming in scripture, in the biblical narrative, is followed by the second coming. The warrior king is going to return. The greater David is getting ready. His armies of angels are even now arming up. And when he comes back, he will destroy the devil. He will roll back the curse. As Revelation 21 and 22 make clear, it is not just that he will set up a settlement in the new heavens and the new earth. It is that this earth will be remade and the whole earth will be his footstool and we will reign with him. So right now, as we conclude, we live amidst darkness. We see it and we feel it. But we must lift our eyes. We must hear the angel say to Mary, do not be afraid. We must remember that out there, In the wilderness, in the valley of the shadow of death, there is fire. Light has come into the world, and the darkness has not overcome it. Merry Christmas.